Turn your Bibles this morning. You can turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 will be starting in verse 20, going through uh, the end of verse 35. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20, going through 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Following has consequences. Who you follow what you follow matters a great deal to you, to who you are, to where you're going. Loyal dogs tend to follow their owners everywhere they go. And eventually, over time, they begin to look and act like their owners. I had a dog when I was growing up who followed me everywhere. He was about six inches behind my heel everywhere I went throughout the house. And at that time, particularly, what I really enjoyed doing was laying on the couch and doing nothing. That was my favorite. If I could just sit there and do nothing all day, that's all I ever wanted to do. And that dog, when we got him, had some pretty good energy. He was pretty fast. By the time we no longer had that dog, he no longer had a lot of energy. He was no longer very fast. What he enjoyed doing was laying around all day next to the couch, next to me, doing nothing. Following has consequences. Who you follow on social media, that's eventually going to affect you. These ideas, what they post, what they say, those are the ideas that you'll read. Those are the ideas that you'll like. You're going to bring more and more content just like it, but usually a little bit more extreme with it. Then that cycle continues over and over. It's spiraling down the rabbit hole of whichever direction you started down in the beginning just by simply following someone on Twitter, on Facebook, Instagram, etc. Following has consequences. For followers of Jesus, we can start to see some of those consequences in our text today. We'll be able to see four characteristics of followers of Jesus. What do the followers of Jesus start to look like? We're continuing our series in the book of Mark. Last week, we talked about who his followers were, that he was calling followers to himself whom he desired. We picked it back up, and he called out the twelve. There were crowds who followed him everywhere he went who wanted his benefits. There were demons who knew who he was but did not love him or serve him. But there were also his followers who he called to himself, desired, and served, and loved him. They were known by him. We're picking right up in the next verse this week. 
And from this verse, we can already start to begin to see what those followers are going to look like. That when you become a follower of Jesus, you begin to look and act a certain way. You can see four of those characteristics in our sermon today. First of all, the followers of Jesus tend to look a little bit crazy. Look at verses 20 and 21. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. The first characteristic of followers of Jesus from the text today that we can see is that his followers are going to look a little bit crazy. You're going to look a little bit out of your mind if you're following Christ, if you're acting like him, if you're following him, if you're doing as he is commanded. First of all, in verse 20, they forego their own comfort for the sake of the crowds. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. I don't know about you, I have never once given up a meal for the sake of a crowd. <laughs> I don't like crowds. I can't stand crowds. I will avoid crowds if by any means possible. I'm not going to give up my food just because they're here. That's a little crazy. That's the first thing we see in the text, that he calls out the twelve, and now those twelve, because of the crowds gathered around them, they're not even eating for the sake of the crowd. For the love of the crowd. They immediately look a little bit crazy to me. But then they start to look crazy even to the people who know them. Verse 21. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Followers of Jesus, when they look a little bit crazy, they tend to look and act unrecognizably different from their former selves. Okay, this is Christ's family. They knew him. He'd been around for 30 years before he started doing any of this stuff. And once his ministry started, once he made that switch into his public ministry, revealing himself to be the Christ, even his family thought, what's going on? His followers' families had to have much that same idea. You've got a good job here. You're a fisherman. Why are you following this guy who's just walking around? They looked a little bit out of their mind. After hear hearing what Jesus was doing, his family went to take him away. He was acting differently enough that people were talking about his difference. Word had gotten around, and his family noticed that difference to the point that they were discussing it and said, this is a problem. We've got to fix this. He's out of his mind. He's a little bit crazy. They thought he was crazy in the differences between the lives that he and his followers were living now and the lives that they were living before. If you are a follower of Jesus, you should look and act differently than you did before. You should be a different person. You are a new creation. So that old creation, that old man, eventually falls away. He progressively falls away. If you're growing in Christ, if you're growing in your discipleship, and if you're growing in your relationship with him, you are going to look and act differently than you did before. And that difference should be so different that you look a little crazy to the people around you. you look a little not normal to the people around you. you. look a little weird to the people around you. See, Christianity, in and of itself, our faith, is a good difference. It's a good weird. We should actually lean into that weirdness, lean into that strangeness, just a little bit more than we tend to do. Okay, this is weird. It's weird for you to be in this room right now. Okay, stores are open. Restaurants are open. There's football in exactly 30 minutes. You're not going to make it in time. <laughs> This is weird. We sing. 
Name another place where people just get in the same room and start singing. We pray. We read. You have to hear from this guy for like 30 minutes. It's a strange thing that you do when you gather here together. But this is a good strange. It's a good difference. It's weird to share the gospel with the people around you. It's weird to give your money for the furtherance of the gospel to the people around you. It's weird to have people over in your house, have them over for dinner, simply because you're part of the same church, simply because you're members here. That is enough reason for you to have them over. And that's weird. You would generally think that you were trying to find people who are like you to do that. If you're in this room, they are like you. It's weird. It's different. It's weird to take 20 minutes out of your day, every day, to read a 2,000-year-old book. No one else is doing that. But the people in this room, we're reading the Bible together. It takes maybe 20 minutes every day if you're doing the whole thing. That's weird. It's different. It's not normal. But these are good weirds. That strangeness, that weirdness, that difference actually is part of what makes Christianity compelling. It's part of what makes up who we are. It's part of our identity. A few of the changes that I have made to the worship service since I've been here, just these last three months or so, they might be a little bit weird to you. They might feel a little bit different. And some of them, I'll admit, maybe even they're worse than they were before. The worship service, some of the aspects of it, may be not only different, but not as good. But one of the goals that I have in our worship service is for this hour, this time, to look completely different from the rest of your week. There's nothing else you do like this. We gather together to praise the God of the universe. We are members of the same family, the same household. We serve the same God. We gather together, and when we gather together, that gathering should be like nothing else. So we're leaning into that strangeness. We're leaning into that weirdness. Some of them, maybe even the formality of it. We want it to be different. We want you to know that it's different. We want this hour, this time, to be a good difference and a good weird for you. So that whenever you go out into the rest of the world where everything looks and acts the same, You'll know that this is different. The God we serve is different. Your identity in this room is different. Christianity is a good different. We have to keep it weird. We should be different, and followers of Jesus should look a little bit crazy in our weirdness, in our difference. Keep Christianity weird. The second characteristic of Jesus' followers in our text today that we can see is that his followers are united. Let's look at the next few verses, 22 through 27. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. 
you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to be united. Because followers of Jesus are going to have their critics. Verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. So these, these same scribes, okay, we've talked about scribes before in the book of Mark. The scribes, the Pharisees, the, the religious rulers of the day. They're the guys who know what they're talking about when they talk about the Old Testament. And they couldn't stand what Jesus was doing. They hated it. Just like his family thought he was crazy, they thought he was evil. They thought he was possessed. And these aren't just the same scribes that we've talked about in the, the, the book of Mark up to this point. These are scribes, they're part of the same group, but these are scribes from Jerusalem. These villains not only aren't going away anytime soon, but the conflict is being ratcheted up just a little bit. These aren't just scribes out in the, the wilderness. These aren't just scribes out in the surrounding areas. These are scribes from the center. These are scribes from where the things happen. Jesus is getting the attention of the higher-ups. The conflict is rising, pitch, and tone. These are his critics. And these critics, believe it or not, have very good intentions in mind. When they come out and confront Jesus, they think that they're doing their jobs. The job of the Pharisees, the job of scribes in that time, similar in some ways to the job of pastors today, was to call out that which is evil, to confront it, to say that is evil, that is not good, and to do that for the good of everyone who hears, for the good of the people in their charge, the good of the people who they are leading. They thought that they were doing exactly what they were supposed to do, and they were as wrong as they could have possibly been. In church life, in our lives together, we have to watch to make sure that we aren't accidentally doing the same thing. That we aren't calling that which is good evil just because it's not what we thought it was going to be. We have to make sure that when we say something, when we have an opinion, when we're coming out against something, that we're doing that from a place of biblical fidelity, from faith in Christ. Because if we're just holding up our own traditions, if we're just holding up our own opinions, our own preferences, we're way too similar to these scribes. We're way too similar to the Pharisees. If we're not careful, we'll end up on the opposite side from Scripture and Jesus, while still thinking that we are totally and righteously correct. See, the critics had good intentions in mind. They said those things about Jesus. What might they say about you? They were able to call him evil. They called the God of the universe, who had come down in the flesh, a devil. They said he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. They called God himself a demon, a devil. They acknowledged his power, but they misattributed the source of that power. They knew he wasn't totally just, just human. They knew he wasn't just like them, but they refused to believe that he could be better than they were. So they said, well, if he's not better than us, and he's not like us, he has to be worse than us. They assumed the worst in him. The men who knew more than anyone else on the planet at that time were as wrong as he could possibly have been. They called the God of the universe a devil. What might they say about you? What might your critics have to say about you when you start looking differently because you're a follower of Jesus? See, Christ was perfectly good, perfectly holy, perfectly merciful and just, and yet they still called him evil. 
what are they going to say about you? You who are barely good. You're holy only by your association with him. You're only occasionally merciful. You're rarely just. You know, when they think you're evil, they might have a point. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite quotes of him, who's a, he was a pastor in London in uh, the late 1800s, had a massive ministry, a massive church. He's still a very pop popular preacher today. And I know a lot of people who read his sermons week in and week out. One of my favorite quotes of his when he said, If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. And that's true. If you weren't worse than he thinks you to be, Christ would have had to die. And yet he did. We who are in Christ are worse than our worst critics could possibly think that we are, but we're also more loved and more forgiven than your, than your worst critics could possibly imagine. They said that the God of the universe was evil. What might they say about you? If you are a follower of Jesus, you are going to have your critics, both from outside the church and maybe even from within. But yet, in the midst of that criticism, followers of Jesus maintain their unity. So the next few verses, 23 through 27. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. In the midst of that criticism, in the midst of that disagreement, the followers of Jesus are going to stand united. That's the point that he's making here. That unity has to be found and kept in the midst of conflict. We serve the same master, we who are in Christ. He said, how can Satan cast out Satan? He said, if I were with Satan, why would I be casting him out? The critics accuse Christ and his followers of being followers of Satan, so he just says that obvious response. What do you mean we're on the same team? Why would I be casting out his demons? If we were friends, I wouldn't be punching him in the face. It's an obvious question. What sense would that make? And now at that point, that there are clearly two sides, that Christ is clearly not on the side of evil and Satan, he moves into a discussion, an illustration of unity. He says, no, no, no. Those who are united serve the same master. How can Satan cast out Satan? So the unity of the group, which prevents it from fighting itself, is determined not by the individuals within the group, but by the identity of the leaders of the group. Saying those who serve Satan would not be fighting those who also serve Satan. So we have to take that and flip it to our side, to the followers of Christ. Say the followers of Christ would not be fighting the followers of Christ because they're on the same team. That's the point that he's making. Saying if you are on the evil side, you don't fight with the evil side. If you are on Christ's side, you do not fight with Christ's side. The unity of the group is determined by the leaders of the group. We are united with each other because we are united together to Christ. We're united in service of him because he's the leader. Those who are with him should not fight against each other, amongst one another, because we serve the same master. It's the simple truth that he's saying. If you serve this master, you will not fight with his other ministers. We serve the same master, so we have to maintain our unity. Not only do we serve the same master, but we're citizens of the same kingdom. Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
He's continuing to illustrate that same point that we just made. He's fleshing it out before them, saying, if you're part of the kingdom of God, it cannot stand and also be divided against itself. So his followers, Christ's followers, have to be united because we're citizens of that same kingdom. We've got the same passport. We don't go to war with each other. We're members of the same household, verse 25. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. So not only are we citizens of the same kingdom, but we're members of the same household. So we're citizens, ambassadors, warriors, and conquerors even in the kingdom of God. But we're also members of the same home, brothers and sisters together, adopted into the family of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We have to be united because we're members of the same household. We're the same family. Not only that, we are not coming to an end. Verse 26, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. See, division leads to an end. That's the, the logical end of that sentence. Division leads to an end. But because we are not coming to an end, we who know our end in Christ, we must not be divided against ourselves. Jesus continues making the same point, using Satan and his kingdom to make it clearer in context. But when we zoom out a little bit into the abstract, when we zoom out a little bit and think about ourselves in light of this truth, we can see just that broader point, that division leads to an end. And those who are joined to Christ in God are not coming to an end. We're joined with him and his purposes for forever. So we can't be divided. But rather, we must be united because there's no end for us in sight. Our story does not end. His kingdom does not end. So rather than division, we have to find unity. And that's not in our own strength, right? That's not just because of what we can do with each other, because we can just grab unity by the horns and wrestle it to the ground. It's because of the one we serve, because our God is the one who is stronger. Verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. You see, all this unity, all this security in our never-ending journey together as part of the family of God can be true because of the one we serve. See, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. So we, who are the goods in the house of the strongest man, cannot be plundered. Not only that, but we serve one who has plundered, who is the strong man, who has plundered us from the goods of another. He is the strong man who cannot be bound and whose house cannot be plundered. But he's also the strong man who has entered the house of the enemy and has plundered us. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, which should be on the screen for you. It says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I die, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. See, Christ, in his victory on the cross, in his victory in his resurrection, he won for us a new citizenry, a new location, a new place. He plundered us. 
from the house and the gates of the enemy. Plunder the gates of death and hell and ransom for himself a people, a people who are his followers. And because we serve this strong man, the one who has done that for us, and who cannot be plundered, where we are secure in his grasp, because we serve him, we have to be characterized by unity. Okay, and unity is never easy, right? If unity was easy, they wouldn't have a name for it. Okay, everyone would just always be on the same team all the time. They have to say unity because unity is fought for through possible division, through very real division sometimes. Okay, when I was speaking with the search committee, before you called me as your pastor just a few months ago, one of the questions I asked was, okay, what are the causes of division in the church? It has to exist, right? Surely you can't have this number of people in this room for this often, for this amount of time, and do these things and not have a whole lot of division, a whole lot of disunity. I said, are there fights over doctrine? Are there fights over practice? Are there groups of people who just don't like each other? And they said, I think truthfully, I don't, I don't think they were lying to me. I don't think they were making anything up. They said, no, there's, there's just not any. We don't really have that many disagreements. Everybody just kind of loves each other and goes along. And I still don't think they were lying. I think they were right. That's been my experience. It's been about three months. And I still think that's true. That we are united. That we are on the same page. We do love each other. But that's always true until it isn't, right? The Beatles were a group. And then they weren't. The Chicago Bulls had Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman. And then they didn't. People get married and they're married until they're not. Unity is something you have to continually fight for because everyone's united until they aren't. At some point, if I haven't already, it's been three months, I'm sure I haven't done it to somebody, I am going to do something that makes you angry. I'm gonna do something that makes you mad. I'm gonna do something that you do not like. And I'm sorry for that, I didn't do it on purpose. But when that happens, we have to fight for unity. You have to Fight for the, the division to go away, for the mission to continue. I may have already done this for some of you, and you may have already decided to continue in unity rather than causing division. And if that's true for you, then I thank you. Because it's going to happen. And when it happens, on those days, unless we remember these texts and put them into practice, when that disagreement happens, when the disunity could occur, we could fall into division. We could allow ourselves to no longer be united. And a house that is divided against itself cannot stand. Christ's followers are united. We're united together. That's one of our characteristics. Another one is that we are forgiven. It's the third characteristic of Christ's followers. And this one is actually the, the basis for their unity. Okay? That we can be united because we are similarly forgiven by the God of the universe. Look at the next few verses, 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. He says all the sins of man will be forgiven. Christ's followers are forgiven. 
It's one of our characteristics. All the sins of man will be forgiven. So it tells you that you need forgiveness, but also that you can be forgiven. That you will be forgiven for whatever sins, whatever blasphemies. You need forgiveness, and without that forgiveness, you can't be a follower of Christ. There's nothing you can do on your own that cannot be forgiven. There's nothing you can do that cannot be forgiven. Rest in that. That's true not only for you, but for the people around you. There's nothing they have done that cannot be forgiven. That's what enables our unity, our common forgiveness. That if you have been reconciled to Christ, you have been reconciled from a far greater distance than between you and anyone else in this room. So just as you were forgiven by him, you should forgive them. And they should forgive you. What they have done cannot be forgiven. Forgiveness is the basis of our unity. We're united to Christ and to one another through that entryway, through that doorway of forgiveness by which we become his followers. We become Christians. That's step one in the Christian life. So now having been forgiven, we not only forgive, but we are forgiven by those around us. And that enables our unity to continue. Okay, now we have to get into some verses that... Uh, Frankly, they're hard. Frankly, they, they're hard to understand. Verses 29 and 30. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Not being forgiven of sins, that is an eternal sin. Okay, I'm not going to unpack this text for you fully today for a few reasons. One, I only have so much time. Okay, eventually... You guys will just walk up and leave if I keep going. Second, uh, it's hard. Okay, it's hard. It's not an easy text. People have been debating the meaning of this text and its similar text in the other Synoptic Gospels for uh, about 2,000 years. We haven't arrived at like a solid, firm conclusion as to what this means. The third reason, I'm not going to unpack it fully for you, is because this is probably where I'm going to write my PhD dissertation on. Uh, that's going to be 300 pages-ish. I've written about 100 of them. Again, back to time. I don't have time to read those two. What I can do is try to give you as short and sweet a summary of what I think Christ is saying here as I can. Augustine, one of the, the great theologians of the church, defined this sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which Christ says is an eternal sin, which will not be forgiven, as the enduring hardness of an impenitent heart unto death. Okay, so that, that's a phrase. That's all it wants. The enduring hardness of an impenitent heart unto death. Okay, I'm going to explain that. Okay, don't, don't, don't get too worried. The enduring, the continuing, the continual, not just one time, but for all time, the enduring hardness. So hard as opposed to soft. Think about your heart of flesh versus a heart of stone. The enduring hardness. Your sin-like nature. The enduring hardness of an impenitent. So im, not, penitent, think repentance. So the enduring, the continuing hardness of a heart that is not repenting. Unto death. Until death. At death. Okay, and the, the simplest layman's terms I can give you for that is that if you are still alive, you have not ultimately committed the unpardonable sin. You have not ultimately committed the eternal sin. That you have only committed it if you die 
having not repented for your sin. Which, frankly, is something that we kind of get from the rest of Scripture, right? That if you are not one who has repented and put your faith in Christ, you die in sin and are not forgiven for those sins. But all the sins of man, whatever blasphemies they utter, those can be forgiven. That, I think, is what this text is talking about. I could talk about that more at some point. Probably will. Um, but that's what I think that this text is trying to say. That those apart from Christ die and are not forgiven. That's the one. So be forgiven. Don't die apart from Christ. Be united to him. Be forgiven by him. And be part of his family. That's the fourth characteristic of followers of Jesus in our text. The followers of Jesus are a family. Verses 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. See, the, the final characteristic of Christ's followers in our text today is that his followers are a family. We are closer than blood. Verse 31 and 33. See, his family got out to season, right? We read that at the beginning. His family heard about what was going on. They thought he was crazy, so they left to go out to get him. But they weren't with him. That's why they had to leave. That's why they had to go out to get him. You know who was with him? His followers. His family had finally arrived. They had to cross some sort of distance. They weren't tied into his day-to-day -day life. They weren't those who were around him, who were listening to his teaching. They weren't that close to him. But his followers were with him. They were closer to him than his family. And of all the truths I've told you, even today, this next one might be the hardest one for you to hear. The people in this room, the people who are your fellow church members, the people who are your fellow Christians, your fellow followers of Christ, are meant to be closer and more dear to you than your own flesh and blood. The people in this room are more your brother and sister and mother and father than your own brother and sister and mother and father, particularly if they're not a part of Christ, they're not Christians. See, I think the family is one of the greatest idols that we have in American morality. When asked in 2012 by uh, The Atlantic, a magazine, they asked the question, which of the following types of values do you consider to be most important in your life? So which of the following types of values are most important to you? 41% of respondents said family values. 31% said moral values. 17% said religious values. Maybe there's a lesson there. Okay, we just had Thanksgiving and Christmas. What is the point of every Christmas movie, which I love to death, I uh, watched hundreds of them this year, what is the point of every one of them? Family. Family's the point of Christmas. Family's the point of why we gather together. We have to get together with family. That's not the point of Christmas. It's in the name. Christ. Christ. Mas. You see, I, I think that we too easily and too simply fall back to family rather than falling back on this family, on these people, this room. It's my hope and prayer that that will actually be true for us, that we can be closer than flesh and blood, 
Because we have a stronger identity than flesh and blood. Those last two verses, 34 and 35. We've got a stronger identity than blood as well. Those who are part of Christ's family as his brother and sister and mother, he says that those are the ones who are doing the will of God. If you are following the will of God, you are closer to Christ than his own brother and sister and mothers. We have a stronger identity than blood does. We have a common goal. We have a common way of life. We have a common mission. We have an identity which we share, and that causes us to act, causes us to talk and think and pray and move the same kind of ways. We're all being conformed into the image of Christ. So we have a family identity that's marked by following him. Just like the dog who follows its owner begins to act like the owner, we are following Christ, our owner, so we begin to act like him together. We have a stronger identity than your flesh and blood does. And that truth continues outward, even beyond just the people in this room. Christians have more in common with other Christians than any other people group on the planet, including your own flesh and blood, including your own family. You are truly part of the same family as other Christians. Whereas your flesh and blood family, that's only an earthly resemblance. It's only for a short time. But the family resemblance in this room will last for eternity. It never ends. You have more in common with a Christian in an underground church in Afghanistan than you do your own brother if he's not a believer. One of them you're going to be with for eternity. The other one you're not. You have more in common with a Christian if he is a Democrat and you are a Republican than your own brother if he's not a Christian. Than your party's leader if he's not a Christian. Christian identity trumps all other identities. And we have to remember that. As the family of God, we are closer than blood, and we have a stronger identity than blood does. I know that can be hard to hear, but if you let it, I think that's a comforting truth. This place that you come every week, these people you gather with every time, this is a truer family than you've ever realized. When we gather on Sundays, it's a family gathering. You get together with your family every week. To praise the God who saved you and brought you into that family. We're closer than blood, but the stronger identity than blood has. Followers of Jesus are a family. Christ has called his people to be his followers. He doesn't merely want crowds who know him, who don't follow him. He wants followers who know him and love him. He's asked not for converts, but for followers. And for those who follow him, that's going to have some consequences for us. When you follow Jesus, you might start to look a little bit crazy. And that craziness, that strangeness, can actually be a very good thing. Followers of Jesus are united. We're all heading the same direction. We're serving the same master. We're part of the same household. We become his followers by being forgiven by him. And that forgiveness actually enables our unity. Because it makes us part of the same household. It shows us how we'll have to treat one another in order to stay unified. And we must be unified because we are part of the same household. We're part of the same family. Those who follow Christ and do his will are joined together in a bond that is closer than blood. It's closer than family. What a sweet gift he's given us in calling us to follow him. Let's pray.
God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for not only calling us to follow you, but changing us as we follow you. Giving us similar characteristics. Giving us the same craziness. The same unity. The same forgiveness. The same family. Help us to know that. To trust that. To rest in that. While some of these truths, some of these facts, may be hard to hear, they may not be what we're used to, help for us to come together in unity as a family, to hear them together and be changed by them. Help for us to look different as we follow you. Not only today, but every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.